At a time when investors are confronted with market volatility and a variety of challenges fueled by the uncertainty of inflation, unsettled geopolitical tensions, and economic pressures, Justin Klein and Steve Peasley stand ready to take your finance and investment questions and share their unbiased answers. This is Invest Talk, independent thinking, shared success. Invest Talk is made possible by KPP Financial, a registered investment advisor firm serving clients throughout the United States. The clarity for your path forward starts now. Here is KPP Chief Executive Officer, Financial Advisor, Justin Klein. Good afternoon, fellow investors, and welcome back to Invest Talk. This is our Thursday, August 25th, 2022 edition. I'm Justin Klein, and I'm excited to share this hour with you, answering your finance and investment questions. And as always, the phone number never changes. So you can call me right now, 24 7, 365 at 888 989 chart. And I've got a packed podcast for you today. Our main focus point concerns a question about wide moat stocks. And we're going to look into how to screen for quality. What does a wide moat mean when it comes to uh, individual companies? But um, I, I did want to get to uh, this that I was thinking about the other day. And uh, you know, what we do on this show is, is really try to keep your frame of mind uh, in, the, in the right direction because we can't. We can't tell you what to do at every given moment, but we can help you create a, a, a mindset to make good investment decisions. And that's really our goal. Uh, and that will instill some consistency in you to not chase after what I call the narrative. And our world is dominated by narratives. And so we're trying to instill uh, a thought process that really gets you to invest in the reality, the reality of the situation. The old adage is always, don't invest the way you think the world should be, or you hope it to be, you have to invest the way it actually is. And unfortunately, in our world today, you know, politicians, they only care about how their words are perceived, right, how the narrative is perceived that they spin. They don't really care how their actions create impact because the the it's all about that 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 perception, not necessarily the reality, because the perception is what gets people to go to the polls and vote for a particular politician. And you can see that with the Fed. The Fed does forward guidance, and that's all about the narrative, right? They've kind of shifted to this. It's, what, that's why they did the dot plots and, um, you know, they're, they're focusing more on, you know, what signal are they giving to the marketplace? 30 years ago, the Fed never did this. They just came out and they, one day you were just looking at your screens and, hey, the Fed raised the rates 50 basis points and the market suddenly moved and all that. So now it's all about the narrative. But in the end, reality always wins. Narratives fall apart without actual realization of that complete story. Crypto is a perfect example of this. Decentralization will solve all problems. That's kind of what people in the crypto world believe. But nuance matters. And can decentralization help in certain instances? Absolutely. But like most things, there are pros and there are cons. 
and the world lives in shades of gray. It's not black and white. And too many people get caught up in that. They think that the world is black and white. You're with one party or you're another. You're for something or you're against something. Well, there's nuance. And so we try to give you some data points some perspective and some nuance. And you need to think with nuance because nothing is always horrible or always great. Depends on situation, personal situation, situation of the economy, your own lifestyle choices, your risk tolerance levels, etc. And I've talked a lot about the fourth turning about major change and how, you know, we're in this crisis period and you can feel that. And there's going to be a shakeup of how the world order is probably over the next decade. But a lot of people look at that pessimistically and frankly, I actually looked at, at look at that optimistically. Think about the last four turning. It was the ushering in of the liberal world order. I think that was kind of a good thing, right? Sure, we had to go through World War II. That was not good. But that doesn't mean that the world's going to burn down. What I think it actually means is that the major change that is going to spark is reinstituting reality and out with simply the narrative and focusing on cold, hard facts. And you're seeing that now with the energy crisis. That is a manifestation of reality setting in. That reality is trumping the narrative. And the narrative is always, hey, you should invest in green energy and everything's going to be fine. Without understanding the nuances of, like I talked about yesterday, the pros and cons of, uh, of each type. And so let this be a lesson to you as we enter this time. We, we, the, the era of cheap money and low interest rates is over. The era of inflation and changing dynamics is here. And as you see this evolve, you see deglobalization, you see inflation, you see the manifestation of the risks that we've kind of built over the past few decades with cheap money, exporting jobs overseas, and that's all kind of reversing. And so you need to be comfortable with this new regime in order to make good decisions. If you rely on that old playbook, you're going to make a lot of bad decisions. So just wanted to get to that, but let's check in on the market today. And you had the S&P up about 58 points, a little over 1%. And we head into tomorrow where there's likely to be some fireworks in regards to the Jackson Hole meeting. This is a typical time where central banks do pivot a bit. Uh, so the expectation is that they will pivot to a less hawkish tone. And the 10-year reflected that today, down eight basis points after a pretty big surge over the past five days. The dollar was a bit weaker, uh, but overall it was fairly positive. A lot of people were, uh, I think, prematurely saying, okay, well, the bear, market's, bear market rally's over and we're going to head back lower. I actually think we're probably going to head higher for a few weeks. Just get enough people off sides. 
Once again, could be wrong. Tomorrow, you're likely to see some fireworks. All right. Now, I see we have some caller voice bank questions ready to play for this hour, and we might get to Procter & Gamble later in the show, as well as SBRA Sabra. And I've got a lot planned on this episode of Invest Talk. And of course, I'll take your calls live at 888-99-CHART. So I'm ready, ready to hear what you have to say. We're heading into a break, and I welcome your finance investment questions right now. No question is too simple or complex. You set the agenda. Call Invest Talk at 888-99-CHART. Why do listener questions make Invest Talk better? Which of these would you recommend? Because each caller presents fresh questions in their voice. I was curious if you still think aluminum has a ways to go from here. When do I know the right time to take profits? Should I be looking for an exit? Should I be holding here? And listeners instinctively realize that Invest Talk uniquely offers a welcome dose of investing satisfaction. I think you have a terrific show, and I've learned a whole lot. Hey guys, love your show. Uh, I've been listening for several years now, and I've learned a lot. Justin Klein and Steve Peasley understand what investors need and want. I would look at it from a tax perspective. If there's no tax implications, move on, find better ways to use that money. I'm going with the odds. I think a half position now would at least get you in it and get you watching it so you won't lose track of it. Don't forget to call Investor. 888-99-CHART. No two portfolios are alike, and every investor has a unique set of circumstances. So don't forget to call InvestTalk, 888-99-CHART. Hey, Justin, Steve, just calling on ticker symbol TG, that's Procter & Gamble. I'd like to add a position for my Roth IRA. Just wanted to see what your guys' expertise would be on. What would be a good buy point? Thank you so much for all your help. Hope you have a great day. All right, looking at Procter & Gamble, I don't think I need to tell anybody what they do, but one of the largest bellwether companies in the world, $350 billion market cap. Earnings this year are expected to be $5.81. That's up uh, from five sixty six dollars last year. Expected to go to five ninety three next year and six forty the year after, but those expectations are now coming down. This is a very slow growth company. It typically moves with the overall economy and yields about two point five percent. But um, you know, it's a, it's a solid company. Return on equity uh, about thirty two percent. Return on invested capital eighteen percent. But let's look at the multiples it's trading at. Enterprise value to EBITDA is about eight, 17.6, which is, is pretty high. And historically, this typically is cheap when it gets into the low teens, not the mid to high teens, which it's at now. Uh, so that's one worry there. And then you look at uh, the price to sales ratio. And the reason price sales sales ratio kind of cuts through it all is because sometimes companies are over earning means their margins are higher than they are historically. And if you have a version to the mean, you know, those profitability led metrics like enterprise value to EBITDA tend to overestimate how cheap the company is. Um, so price of sales, that's at about 4.6. And historically, it doesn't get cheap until it's in the mid to low twos, now at 4.6. Um, so I just think it's overvalued. Uh, in an inflationary world, their input costs tend to go, go up more than 
their ability to raise their prices, especially in a world where a lot of their products have a store brand alternative. Think of toothpaste and uh, cleaning supplies and, and soap and, and, uh, and shampoo, etc. There's usually a cheaper alternative. So there's a limit to how much Procter & Gamble can, can really charge. And so you're starting to see people as their belts are, are tightening because of inflation, because of a slower economy, they're, they're trading down uh, and away from Procter & Gamble goods to uh, the store-bought goods. So you know, I don't like that trend, and I think it's just too overvalued. Our value is closer to about $110 per share. Now it's at $145.70. So I'd be patient on it. Not a name that I would be excited to get into at these prices. All right. Now let's make it two in a row. Here comes another caller question from 888-99-CHART. Hi, Stephen Justin. This is Kevin from La Crescenta, California. I know that you guys don't necessarily follow any particular research or buy any research or make your trades based on any outside research. But I'm wondering if there's any investors you know, besides Warren Buffett where uh, you kind of just follow their moves and don't make the trades based on it, but it just kind of piques your interest if there are any uh, investors you kind of are interested in what they're doing. Just a question I've been wondering. I'll be listening for your answer on the show. Thanks. Sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, there. That's a great point there. That you never want to make a decision based on one thing. Uh, Warren Buffett buys it, so I'm going to buy it. It's a terrible way to make a decision. Uh, the risk tolerance level for Warren is, might be different than yours, uh, and his overall portfolio uh, construction might be different than yours. Maybe disagree for his reasons why he's buying that particular company. Uh, so. And Warren's been wrong. Don't you know? He's throughout his history, he's been wrong plenty of times. Just like we all are, we're all wrong. So you know, you're not going to guarantee yourself uh, a profit by uh, investing away one particular investor uh, invests because we all make mistakes. Uh, so what you want to do though is maybe, like you said, spark your interest in a particular name. Do a little more background research. Look for other opinions. Look for the risks as well as understanding the the upside. And then making a fully informed decision, then you can go and make uh, you make the trade. Uh, are there others that would like? Yes, Seth Klarman. He's a he's a big hedge fund guy. Um, on the bond side, I, I do like Jeffrey Gunlock. I think he's uh, very astute and he he understands kind of the macro dynamics. Uh, Ray Dalio is also a very good Bridgewater's uh, kind of uh, quad matrix uh, is a good way to understand over and underweight particular sectors. Um, so those are those are helpful. But you know, for example, Ray Dalio, I don't I don't buy into this China is going to surpass us type of thing the way that he speaks about. So it's a good example is where I don't agree with him, even though I respect uh, a lot of his thinking. So make sure you take anybody's opinion, including my own, with a grain of salt. Now, James from New York, hang on. You will be next. I'm going to take a fast break here. Remember, I'm ready to take your questions now. So give Invest Talk a call at 888-99-CHART. Invest Talk is always made better when our listeners contribute their questions. So tell your friends and family members they can interact in real time with Steve Peasley and Justin Klein during the Invest Talk live stream program between 4 and 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Or they can leave their questions anytime 24 7 in the Invest Talk voice bank. Remember, for live or recorded questions, the number never changes. 
888-99-CHART. Let's go over to New York and talk to James looking at GlaxoSmithKline. Uh, yes, uh, I own uh, GlaxoSmith, mm-hmm. and I was thinking of maybe adding to it for uh, the purpose of the dividend, the long-term hold. I'd like to maybe add to that position. Um, my question is, is it cheap? Uh, is it cheap enough? Could it be cheaper? And is it the dividend safe? Okay. Well, do you understand why it fell so much recently? Well, because it did a reverse split, I believe. No, that's not Still why. Still a spinoff? Yeah, no, that's not why. So uh, GlaxoSmith, as well as Sanofi Aventis, they are now part of a class action lawsuit in regards to Zantac. And Zantac was taken off market a couple of years ago due to carcinogen effects or carcinogenic effects, uh, basically saying it causes cancer. And so uh, there's a class action lawsuit and there's a recent uh, ruling against them. And so that's really why this was such a large sell-off. Now, the question is, is the sell-off more than realistic? Uh, you know, the companies combined lost about $30 billion in value. Uh, and historically, these type of settlements are much lower than that uh, in the mid to, to high single digits of billions. And so the odds are pretty good that uh, the eventual settlement here is going to be much lower than that $30 billion mark. And, you know, if you look at uh, the opioid settlement with Purdue Pharma, Teva, Johnson & Johnson, uh, Mallinckrodt, they all were $20 billion-ish uh, in, in, or combined in, in settlements. And so, you know, this is way less impactful than the opioid crisis. So I do think the sell-off is a little bit overblown. Um, now, not paying a huge dividend still 1.1 percent so not like you're getting something um you know huge uh, at these levels uh but i do think this sell-off is overdone uh but the litigation certainly adds another level of risk that you have to be comfortable with and it's likely to mean volatility in the the medium term as uh, this you know this this legal issue hangs over them uh probably not going to get a lot of traction to the upside until this is fully settled and and put behind them uh and typically this takes months if not years for that to eventually happen so if you have a long-term time horizon you can handle the volatility that this now kind of puts on the name then you know i do think it's uh, relatively cheap here but you have to be comfortable with that makes sense james yeah Thanks for the call. Now, my focus point today concerns this question. What is a wide mode stock? Now, according to Morningstar, since the bear market low point on June 16th, stocks with economic moats are doing better than those without a moat. Now, what is an economic moat? Well, it's simply some sort of economic advantage. It could be you have a great brand. Think of Coke. Uh, it could be you have some technology that allows you to produce a better product or service for your customers that your competitors don't have. Uh, It could be scale. Think of Walmart, just the massive amount of stores and sales that they have, and they can have a very small margin and make a ton of money. And, you know, it's, it's hard to compete on price with, with, with a Walmart. Um, So there are various ways that uh, companies can have, uh, an economic moat. Think of a castle, right? So we call it a moat. Is how how can a competitor get in and, and uh, infiltrate 
their business and destroy their business. Uh, and the wider that moat is, the harder it is for those competitors to compete. Now, companies with a Morningstar economic moat rating of narrow, which means their competitive advantage is expected to last uh, up to 10 years, which means they're likely to have return on capital of uh, excess of their cost of capital. Those rose 14.9% since the low in mid-June. What's interesting, though, is wide moat stocks, those only were up 13.6%. So those narrow moats, the companies that don't have quite as much of an advantage as those really wide wide moat stocks, um, they, they did better. And a lot of this comes down to more of the type of companies they are. More cyclical names don't tend to have large economic moats. They tend to have narrow economic moats where, you know, they have one advantage and, and they're kind of, it's good, but it's not this world-beating thing, right, where they'll, they'll never lose their, their competitive edge. Uh, whereas wide moat stocks, it's very difficult for um, them to lose what they're doing, like Coke. You know, how often, how long is it going to take for Coke to lose its brand uh, and brand recognition? I think it's going to take a long time uh, and another company to come in and really usurp uh, where, where they're at. And so... Uh, so the difference in the short-term performance and the valuation has more to do with uh, the type of companies they are, as well as the market cap weighting. So small caps rallied more uh, since the June low, and guess what? Those small cap names tend to have more, uh, more, more narrow moats. Um, now, what's interesting here is since the start of the year, the narrow moat index is, uh, is, uh, was 23% overvalued. And the no moat index was 13% overvalued. So those narrow moats were, were kind of overvalued coming into the year. Uh, but historically, the, uh, the over since, what is it, the last five years, wide moat, the in, wide moat index is up 95.5%, while the broad market is up 86.8%. And the no moat group, that has underperformed the wide moat group by 24 percentage points over those five years. That is massive. And it just goes to show you that in any short period of time, you know, those lower quality names can do a little bit better. But over the long term, you want companies that have strong, consistent wide votes. Now we're heading into a break. So give me a call at 888-99-CHART. Have you heard about Riskalyze? It's a brief question and answer form that you fill out online. Steve Peasley and Justin Klein will also get a copy of your responses. They can use the Riskalyze results to help you formulate a strategy that fits your investing risk tolerance. Learn more anytime and take the Riskalyze quiz at investtalk.com. Eight eight ninety nine chart eight eight nine nine two four two seven eight. Now faced with COVID lockdowns, worsening U.S. China tensions, now an indefinite power cut in China's heartland, companies are exploring how to divert their supply chain away from China, and that's what we're going to talk about on the next Invest Talk, which is after supply chain chaos, big names consider diversifying manufacturing away from China, and I think that's vital thing to grasp as we enter uh, as another factor in this inflationary environment. Let's go to Connie in San Francisco looking at IWS, which is the iShares Russell Midcap Value ETF. Do you own it or looking to buy it? Uh, I own some, but I think down. I'm kind of curious is a good time to buy more or should I wait? I, I like this one. You know, mid caps historically have some of the best 
uh, risk versus reward, meaning small caps do have better long-term performance than mid caps, just like mid caps have better long-term performance than large caps. Uh, but the volatility of small caps typically is much higher, whereas mid caps, they kind of enter this phase where, you know, most of them, they're big enough, they, they get enough credit, they, their business is more stable, and they don't have quite the volatility, more volatility still than large caps, but not nearly as much as those small caps. So mid caps is kind of that nice sweet spot uh, over the long term. And then this is a value ETF. So it's leaning on the value side of the market. You only have 10% in technology, which I like. Uh, overweight in industrials, 14%. Financial services, 17%. Energy is five, better than the indices. Still not high enough, but um, better than the indices. And base materials, about 6%. Also much better than the indices, but not high enough. So, you know, could you make a custom... ETF that's uh, much better, sure. But if you want to kind of simple set it and forget it, uh, mid cap ETF with low fees on the value side, this is a pretty good one. So uh, I give IWS a thumbs up if you want just a simple, straightforward allocation. Okay. Thanks for the Thank call. You. No problem. Now let's touch on the IPO market, and should be no shock to you that it is on pace for the worst year in decades, and. Companies have few options now but to lay off workers and especially the ones that are burning cash because it's not easy to raise capital like it was last year. And late last year, hundreds of companies were preparing to go public. Why? Because previous, the previous 18 months, you know, kind of from the summer of 2020 into the end of last year, was the best period ever for IPOs. But so far this year, traditional IPOs have raised only $5.1 billion. And typically, over the last five years, the average amount that would have been raised is $33 billion. And last year, up to this point, there was a $100 billion raise. So it's down 95% from last year. And they have not, we have not seen these levels of IPO uh, raising since 2009, when we were just coming out of the financial crisis. And you know, there are cryptocurrency startups, food delivery companies, and financial you know, fintech companies. They had all planned to go public in 2022, but obviously that, that changed rapidly. Uh, and there, but there are still companies that are, are attempting to. GoPuff, which is a rapid delivery startup, they're laying off some workers um, in order to get the profitability to go public. Stripe also has slashed its private valuations. Uh, and others are raising capital at steeper discounts in the private market. And many fund managers were burned from last year's IPOs. So that's another reason as well. Not a lot of fund, fund managers are excited to invest in these IPOs because of Robinhood, Rivian, Toast, all, all are saddled with pretty big losses. And many companies are still, still ready to go public. So the bankers say there's not a dearth of companies that want to go public. It's the ability for them to get the capital. Other, some are uh, running up against uh, restricted stock units, RTUs to employees uh, that if you get over a certain amount, you kind of have to go public. And some need the money for acquisitions. Others are just need the money because, hey, they're burning too much capital. Now, what, what are the new offerings you're going to see this year? More spinoffs. Intel's Mobileye is going to be a spinoff as well as AIG's Corebridge Financial. SoftBank is trying to uh, spin off its ARM uh, division now that NVIDIA didn't buy them. That's expected to probably hit in the first uh, part of next year. 
Uh, but the IPO playbook is really changing. It's really uh, focusing on companies that are A, are profitable, that are fairly large, and that are must-own, are kind of leaders within their specific industry. And many private companies are taking note. For example, Instacart, they finally hit profitability in the second quarter because they're trying to hit, they're trying to go public. And they, in order to go public over the next probably 12 months, you're going to need to be profitable. And uh, that's kind of a good thing, I think. It means these companies are healthier uh, and they have more sustainable business models. Because if you go public, you're not making money. Well, do you have the ability to actually make money ever? I don't, nobody knows that. You're just hoping and praying if you're an investor. You know, look at Peloton. They didn't make money in the worst particular market in his or you know type of setup for them in history where everyone was shut down and working from home and and trying to work out from home and so that's why that stock continues to, to bleed and any company that's losing money is likely to continue to bleed lower and so if you have those companies in your portfolio that are just have negative consistent free cash flow you need to be very weary of them uh, and look to maybe trade out and look for companies that are about Cash flow, dividends, and earnings today. Now let's go to Dave in Ohio. Wants to talk about dividends. Oh, hi, I Justin. Thanks for taking my call. Of course, and I listen every night. Appreciate it. Um, my question is about uh, dividend investing. Okay. Um, I have about one point two million invested, and it's generating about a little over thirty three hundred dollars a month. Mm-hmm. How's one of that's is that on the low side? I mean, should I be making a little more money on that? I mean, just just your your idea, just your thoughts. Well, I mean, you're you're talking roughly a three and a half percent rough yield somewhere in that range, which you know that's I think that's that's sustainable. It seems like obviously it depends on the companies, uh, and that's really what I'd I'd really like to do is dig into the companies that you're owning. So if you want to set up a portfolio review, I think that would be helpful because remember dividend investing is not about the dividend. It's about the company because the, the dividend can go away. Any company can, can, can eliminate their dividend at any time. Uh, and if their business model becomes impaired for whatever reason, that's the first thing they're going to do. Uh, if they're trying to repair their balance sheet, they're trying to reinvest in their business while well, paying out to, their shareholders is not going to be a first priority. The first priority is staying in business and growing their business. And so, you know, it's three and a half. I'm glad you didn't say seven because that would that would mean that hey, you're you're owning way too many companies that have huge dividends, which means uh, they're very high risk. And sometimes that high risk is 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 warranted, uh, and, and it's smart because they have a good plan and etc. And they're going to dig themselves out of whatever they're in, and and that's a nice yield. Uh, but for the vast majority of companies, it's the, a modest dividend, two, three, four percent is probably where you want to be. And you want to focus on those companies that have consistent profitability, cash flow, uh, and and uh, their payout ratio is is relatively low. Their cash dividend payout ratio, meaning the percentage of their cash flow that they're paying, paying out into a dividend is relatively low as well. And that's important. So I'd really encourage you reach out to me, go to investtalk.com, uh, set up a portfolio review. I'll look at all your positions and give you a sense of, are you are, are you invested in two high risk names? How much risk are you taking overall? Uh, should you be shifting to different sectors, uh, different parts of the market, small cap, mid cap, et cetera? Uh, so uh, I really encourage you, Dave, to, to reach out to us and, and we can uh, set something up uh, via, via go-to meeting or, 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 or a phone call. So thanks for the call, Dave. 
Okay. Let's squeeze in another caller question from 888-99-CHART. Hi. Uh, I invested 10% of my Roth IRA portfolio in a small cap value ETF, AVUV. Mm-hmm. I think if ETF is a pure small cap value, can I have your opinion on owning this ETF for a long-term investment? Thank you so much. All right, looking at the Avantis U.S. small cap value ETF, and kind of similar to the mid cap value that we discussed earlier, but I think this one's even better. Uh, now, one worry I'd have is 29% is in financial services, so probably a lot of uh, small banks, regional banks, which I think I'm, I'm fine with overall, uh, but not a lot in technology, 4%, which I kind of like, 16% in energy, which I do really like, and about 7% in basic materials, uh, 17% in industrials, which I like, not a whole lot in real estate, it's only 0.55%, so I wish that was a little higher. Same with utilities, that's basically zero. Um, so overall, I, I like this this uh, this ETF. Um, you know, Once again, could it be a better uh, asset allocation when it comes to the sectors? Sure, uh, but kind of a nice set it, forget it. Uh, it's, let's see, what are the fees? About 25 basis points. That's a little bit on the higher side for an ETF, uh, but maybe not for a small cap. So, uh, you know, overall, I'm going to give this one a thumbs up as well. That's an AVUV, the Aventus US small cap ETF. Thanks for the call. 8899 chart, 8899 Let's pivot over to inflation. Uh, and deglobalization, and this is really important because it's going to feed into central banking. And given the significance of that inflation on Fed policy and ultimately asset prices, it's worth looking at the arguments about of, of persistently high inflation, which I've been speaking about. But I want to break it down a little further. And it really comes down to three main factors, and that would be uh, that would be nativism, protectionism, and geopolitics being destabilized. And first is nativism. And obviously that is, hey, protecting workers in your own country. And really since 2016, since the, since Trump, uh, uh, Trump administration, immigration is way, way down. And with less immigration, current workers have more leverage. And there's uh, there are no more. There are now more job openings than at any time in the last twenty years, and so this typically means that the era of wages being in check, because there was plenty of labor, which companies use to increase increase their profit margins, boost uh, 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 keep the prices of their goods relatively low. You know that ca- that that um, created that low inflationary environment that we're, we've been used to. That's all changing. And it's, it's one of those things where employees uh, are becoming harder to replace and in greater demand, and they're seeking those higher wages. And average hourly weight earnings for manufacturing employers were trending lower until about five years ago, when immigration became more restrictive. And the Fed's, the Fed's primary concern and hawkishness is about a price-wage spiral. So that is a number one of that will stimulate the the Fed to become more hawkish and create higher rates. So that's why we say we're in an inflationary environment with higher rates. Then you have China and the pandemic created in a situation where politicians realized that essential goods, technology products, pharmaceuticals were not within our borders. The 
the means of production were not within our borders, and many of those are vital. 80% of basic components used in U.S. drugs, active pharmaceutical ingredients, they come from China or India. And in the recent inflation reduction bill, it actually is attempting to incentivize companies to bring manufacturing of semiconductors and other essential goods back here to the U.S. This is industrial policy. We haven't had true industrial policy in this country for a long time. It's been all about exporting uh, to the cheapest, cheapest part of the world. And then you have Russia and Europe has approximately 40% uh, of its natural gas comes from Russia and 50% of its coal and generates th those together generate about 30% of Europe's electricity. And guess what? The world will pay higher prices because the German industrial machine is massive. Germany's chemical and pharmaceutical in industries account for about 15% of total gas consumption. And they've been shutting down uh, a lot of their production because of just the cost of gas. Germany is the world's third largest exporter of chemical products. So if they cut production, that means lower supply of these things, lower supply of products, harder to make the end product. And even if we get an end to the war, which doesn't seem likely anytime soon, Europe's still likely to pivot away from that cheap source of energy. And that comes at a higher price. So, you know, this, these are trends that are not, not likely to change uh, anytime soon and like, likely to be long lasting. And so I wanted to go over that because it's vital that you really see this changing world. Talk about the, the fourth turning. And this is part of that, about more regional supply chains that are more secure, but more expensive. So I want to give you a heads up there. Now, this is Invest Talk. I'm Justin Klein, and we have one goal here is to help you achieve your own version of financial freedom. And we're heading into our final break. So, if you need help, you have a question, don't hesitate to reach out. Don't hesitate to reach out to myself or STPs at our company, KHP Financial, where we do the same thing for our clients provide unbiased guidance and practice parallel investing. So, that's why we say independent thinking and shared success. So, I encourage you to reach out. To our home office, 800-557-5461, or if you want to call the show, that's 888-99-CHART. The markets react to uncertainty. Are you prepared? Is your portfolio balanced? Is it optimized? Your financial future depends on the answers to those questions. Justin Klein is here now and ready to talk with you. Call InvestTalk, 888-99-CHART. Hi, Stephen, Justin. I'm calling in with a question on a REIT. It's called Zebra Healthcare. The symbol is S-B-R-A. Want to get your overall opinion and what you think would be a good entry point. I'm looking to get in for one of my retirement accounts and also just for my regular brokerage account. I don't know. I guess it's probably more efficient to do to place it in a, a retirement account, but I'm just looking for income, and that's what the purpose is. So I'll be listening to the answer on your show. Thank you. I love this call. I love this call, and it's the perfect example of what I've been talking about with 
with dividend investing. And what this caller is asking about is Sabra Health, SBRA is the symbol. And what they do is they operate nursing facilities, assisted living centers, and mental health facilities as well. And it does yield about 7.7%, which is probably the focus here. Oh, I want to get that 7.7%. But the first thing you have to consider is, yes, in a retirement account, there is no taxability. So you probably want to put this in a taxable account because in a, ta in, uh, sorry, in a tax deferred account. Because in a taxable account, it's taxed at your ordinary income tax rate. So that 7.7 doesn't look quite as nice. So definitely, most REITs, you should try to hold in a tax-deferred account, like an IRA, 401k, Roth IRA, etc. Second, this is a company that continues to go down in price. And if you look at its profitability, its return on invested capital, return on equity, it's been very, very low. Return on invested capital over the last five years, its median is 2.25. Its average is 2%. That is extremely low. It's terrible. Okay. And if you look at the stock price, it's been continually trending down. It had double top back in 2016 and makes a series of lower highs and lower lows. So you want to be avoiding these type of companies. And you can say, oh, it's paying you the dividend. But 2017, it topped $34. Now it's at 15 so you're still negative from you know where you're at, even if you're collecting the dividend, and you're 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 getting a yield, and you're you're focusing only on the yield. You're not focusing on a actual company that, or, or in this case, a REIT that has good assets that are having uh, throwing off good, consistent, strong, high yields because they're not. Its return on invested capital is very very low. So no. Stay away from this, move on, find a REIT. Yes, it's probably not going to pay 7.7%. Maybe it only yields 4, 4.5%. But look for companies or REITs that have strong return on equity, return on invested capital, uh, cash flow, and are trending higher over the long term. This is, look elsewhere, because this is not your name. Now let's squeeze in one more caller question from the Invest Talk Voice Bank. It never closes at 888 chart Hey, how's it going, Stephen Justin? I have a quick question in relation to um, options trading. You know, I appreciate all the insight and knowledge. I've kind of taken that and been able to implement it into a trading strategy that I've done quite well with. So my question is kind of related to um, tax implication associated with it. I know these are all short-term gains. And I just wanted to know if there was any avenue to offset this. Or when you're dealing with short options, you're just kind of stuck with uh, paying this high tax rate. So I'm looking forward to hearing the answer on your show and uh, thank you again. Yeah, you're right. You know, option trading, that's short-term capital gains. And the only real way you can deal with that is end-of-year tax loss selling. In December, look at your positions. Maybe there are names you can switch out, uh, positions you can switch out. Maybe you're long Exxon and you sell Exxon and, you know, at a loss and you buy Chevron, for example, something very similar. Uh, and you can take that loss, but still gain, keep access to uh, that, that particular sector, for example, or type of, of company. Uh, same with options, right? You're probably going to be down on some options, take some losses before your end, rotate those into some similar type of, of names. So tax loss selling is really all you're going to be able to do uh, in the uh, to, to mitigate those those gains. Yeah, uh, that's the that's the point of options. It's speculation and speculation is not taxed at long term capital gains. The point of long term capital gains is to get you to hold for over a year. And most time, the option market, you're not doing that. Thanks for the call. 
I'm Justin Klein. This completes another Invest Talk program. Steve Peasley and I thank you for listening, and we encourage you to tell your friends and family about our free podcast downloads. And we have now, now over the forty-four point six million dollar million download mark, thanks to you. And hopefully by year end, yeah, we're going to get to that fifty million mark. So this is Invest Talk. You can get yours anytime at iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play, and be sure to rate and review. Independent thinking, shared success. This is Invest Talk. Good night. Invest Talk is a trademark of KPP Financial. Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program, it's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them. Specifically, nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice, or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell security. Because such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis, and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing. Invest Talk is a copyrighted program of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial, a registered investment advisor firm which retains all rights. For more information regarding KPP's investment advisors, call 1-800-557-5461. Steve Peasley is president and Justin Klein is chief executive officer of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial. Thank you for listening and your comments and questions are welcome on our 24-hour listener line at 888-99-CHART.